Welcome to the Pathfinders podcast by VWS. I'm your host, Jenny Stojkovic. Join me in intimate conversations with some of the world's most incredible women leaders in the future of food, fashion, beauty, and technology. We'll dive into their stories, how they built their companies, and how they've dedicated their lives to creating a kinder, more sustainable world. Join us on our journey as we endeavor into this brave new future. You won't believe what's coming next. everybody. I'm Jenny Stojkovic. I'm here, the founder of BWS, with another amazing founder conversation today. We have Leslie Carls, the CEO of Midday Squares. Hello, hello. How's it going? Hi, Jennifer. Good. How are you? Oh, you know, it's been a week of a year that you same with you. Yeah, I think everyone's having that end of the year fatigue. We say we talk about our office all the time because, you know, there's a few more weeks left of December. And we're all trying to go into 2021 with a new, you know, kind of a new outlook. You know, there's not many more surprises. So we're trying to navigate all that now, but we're all feeling that like end of the year COVID fatigue, to be honest. I think fatigue is a nice word. I think burnout may be the word that I'm hearing more often. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We have actually at Midday Squares, we haven't taken, Jake, Nick and I have not taken a break in over three years. And so this year, for the first time ever, we're closing the manufacturing plant down starting December 25th to January 4th. So we are so excited to just check out and do some R&R and and really just like reset, you know? Yeah, 100%. So for those of you that are joining and caught that out, Les is our second Canadian founder that we are having on the show this year. So that's pretty exciting. So why don't we just kind of go right into it and just quickly explain what Midday Squares does, and then we can get into the founder story. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, Midday Squares is a functional chocolate bar company. We manufacture functional chocolates. What is functional chocolate? That's a new term for a lot of people. Well, we like to say it's a protein bar and chocolate bar having a baby and you kind of get midday squares. And so what does it mean functional? So we've got plant-based proteins, we've got fibers, we've got non-refined sugar. So you're not just having that you know, decadent snack, you're having something that actually gives you function. So it gives you energy and it really holds you off a couple of hours in terms of hunger coverage. So that's why we call it functional chocolate. And that's what we do. We manufacture chocolate bars here in Montreal, uh, Quebec. So are you telling me that chocolate can be good for you? I am. And actually our chocolate's 90% dark. So it really has a lot of amazing benefits. You know, that's the beauty about our product is, you know, a lot of our customers say, you know, this gets me, you know, through the afternoon, this helps me with my cravings. So it really is a healthier version of chocolate with a lot of amazing benefits, a lot of superfoods. So yes, I am saying chocolate can be healthy. All right. So everybody that is listening that just heard that is like, okay, now you got to tell me more. Now I'm hooked to hear what on earth she's got going on in Montreal. So let's, I would love to start with a little bit about your background how you got into this whole entrepreneurship thing, if it was always destined, or maybe this was a little bit of a pivot that you took. Let's go to the beginning. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Montreal, Quebec. I was always the odd one out. I was the middle child. I had an older brother and a younger brother, but we were always very, very close. 
I grew up in a very close knit community where, you know, nobody accepted you if you were different. You had to be this certain way and, um, you know, you needed to look a certain way. You know, I was always changing my hair color and cutting it and doing, I was just expressing myself from a very young age. And I started off, I always wanted to be an actress. And so throughout high school, I was really pushing that as my career. And right out of high school, I got on a plane and went to New York City. And I went to a school called Neighborhood Playhouse School of Theater. And it was a really wild experience. I really, really thought that I was going to be like a famous actress. Like I was so committed to it. Yeah, that was like my thing in high school. I was so sure of myself that this is what I was going to be. And when I got to New York City and I went to actually to back up a bit, I did a lot of acting. I had an agency. I was in a union. I did a lot of voiceovers and different stuff like that growing up. And so I was on some sort of journey to getting there. But obviously, as you get older and you see the different challenges and you become more realistic, you know, things obviously change. So when I got to New York City and I realized, you know, the guy who's running the cash at the grocery store wants to be an actor and the guy I was renting DVDs from up the street wanted to be an actor. And, you know, the girl who was doing the mail wanted to be an actress. And I started realizing, wow, everybody's here in New York City trying to become an actor or an actress. I'm like, and so that was kind of an eye opener for me is like, okay, so I am going up against the entire world. And I think once I got into acting school and I was doing that, you know, 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day, I realized that this career wasn't for me. And that was really hard. That was a really hard realization because I could have been 10, 12 years. I was pushing this dream. I was so sure of myself. And then I had that realization in New York City. And I'm like, this isn't for me. I don't want to be a starving actor or actress. You know, I don't want to do that. I'm not willing to have 10 roommates and be a, a bus girl. And there's nothing wrong with that. I just realized that that wasn't for me. And so I was very, very confused. I was 19 years old. I was very confused because I was so sure for so long. And that was a hard journey on finding out now, who am I? And so from there, I went on to the journey that, okay, I think I want to be a chef. And I'm such a foodie. I love food. I'm going to become a chef. I'm going to go to the Cordon Bleu. And I remember telling my parents, they're like, you're not going to the Cordon Bleu. Like, settle down. Why don't you go work in a restaurant for a little bit and then let us know how you feel? And so that's what I did. I came back to Montreal. I went to go work in a restaurant. I worked in the kitchen for a good amount of time. And very quickly, I realized, no, this is not for me. I'm not into this lifestyle either. And so I continued my journey and I actually went to go work in the family business, which at that time they import goods from China, from India, and they sell their distributors basically to dollar stores, Walmarts, that type of store. And I worked there for quite some time doing order desk and all this boring stuff that being a creative really killed me inside. And so one day I go to my mom, I come to the office and I go, I bought a one-way ticket to South America. I'm leaving in four weeks. I'm selling my furniture. I'm taking whatever money I have and I'm going. And I remember her being like, 
you know, my 20 year old daughter leaving to South America by herself. No, you're not. And I'm like, well, you can't stop me. So, <laughs> right. So that realization happened. And I went to South America for a bunch of months until I had no money left. And I really found myself again. I was like really grounded with who I was. I realized, you know, what was important, what wasn't important. I met people from all over the world. We had epic conversations who I still talk today, who I actually have linked up in my, you know, that's the whole beauty of networking, right? You meet people and you don't know where it's going to go, you know? And so coming off of South America, I came back to Montreal, had no money left, no apartment, no nothing. So I moved back into my parents' basement and I was like, what's next? You know, and living with my parents was really challenging because they, till this day, I think now they do, I'm 30 years old. So now it's a little bit of a different relationship. But back in the day, like I said, I was the odd woman out. You know, my mom said white, I said black. And um, it was hard to live with each other for that very reason, because we just didn't jive. I love my parents. We have a great relationship today. But the challenges of parents accepting you for who you are, right? And I remember, so I got back from South America and I was went into fashion. And I was working for a fashion company called La Fée Verte. They did lingerie and ready to wear. And I was doing a lot of the back end stuff. So I was working on managing the, the 3PL, the warehouse, working on inventory control. I was learning all the ins and out of what happens behind the scenes of fashion. So how do you get the product from A to Z to the store? And that's really where I started seeing what it takes to run a business. And I did that for two years and then decided I'm leaving. I'm going to start my own clothing company. Again, I was still living at my parents' house. So when I told them I was leaving my job, they weren't really supportive. And they're like, you're either going to get a job or you're going to go back to school. That's the only way we're going to support you in this house. So I was like, all right, I'll go back to school. And so I went to study marketing at Concordia here in Montreal. I didn't go to one class. I was in the library working on my business. It was just the front of that I'm at school. And so I spent six months birthing my clothing line. And then finally, it was ready to show the world. And I basically told my mom, yeah, I haven't been at, you know, at school. It's been a whole production. I've been working and creating this clothing line at Concordia in the library. And so that's how I started my clothing line. And I did it for about three and a half years. So fashion for me was, it's really not for me. It's a specific industry. I don't care about having to use my language, but like suck up to people or suck people's ass. Like, you know, like it's not for me. I'm a businesswoman. Here's what I'm offering. If you don't like it, no problem. If you do like it, great. If you want to be flexible and have me work on something that you need, let's do it. Like I'm all for that. But fashion wasn't like that. You know, it was a game. It was who do you know? You know, how thin are you? How hot are you? All these things. And that's just not me, you know, like, and so I didn't jive well in the industry, but I trucked along for three and a half years. I designed the collections. I was working mainly out of New York City. I did a lot of stuff in Hong Kong and China overseas. So I spent a lot of days in the manufacturing plants over there, sleeping on the floor if I had to. So it was a, a really intense journey. And basically to bring everything full circle, I did close it down after three and a half years. I was completely discouraged. I did have some wins, but I, I failed. I failed at that. And I learned a lot of why I failed. And there were some strong takeaways. And so at that point, before I closed Hector, my fashion company, I was still living in the basement of my parents' house. And Nick, who's my husband now and my partner, had been my best friend since 14 years old. So we were best buddies through all this. And at one point he 
came to me and he's like, I want to invest in Hector. I really believe in you as an entrepreneur. I believe in what you're doing. So I want to put money down. But in order to do that, I want to put money down and become your partner. And you're going to have to move into my condo with me because he was running a software company and didn't really have time. So the deal was that we would work at 6 a.m. till 10 a.m. together on the back end stuff. Then at 6 p.m. when he got home, we'd work till about midnight together. Obviously, I'd be working throughout the day, but those would be our times to, you know, do what we need to do. And he felt he would be able to sell the products online. That's where his strengths were. And we didn't end up selling one product online, not one. So it was a humbling experience for him. But all to say, that's how I ended up with my husband. We moved in with each other. And a few months later, we started dating. And less than a year later, we got engaged and then married that same year. And both Nick and I are entrepreneurs. And so he left his company, sold his part, and we decided that we wanted to work together and start something. And we didn't know what that was going to be. And I think my whole entire life, I was told no. That was like a really big thing. You're not going to be anything. You're not going to be able to do that. I remember at one point when I was 15, I had hired, an, uh, not a real architect, but a, a student studying to be an architect. I wanted to build a hotel. So I've always been a dreamer. And people really killed me for that, for being a dreamer, for wanting to have big ideas and for wanting to do big things. I really got a lot of pushback on that. And it was really discouraging. And so between family members and friends and the community and my teachers, which was, you're not going to equate to anything. You're a dreamer. That was like my life is just pushing against that. And so when I got into, well, after my clothing line, I closed it, you know, people would say, oh, what's next? Oh, what are you doing now? Very condescending, very you know, and I ignored it because you got to block the noise out. It's so people are irrelevant. And when you start to remember that, you really start excelling in life. You know, it's easy to obviously get bullied down and discouraged by the people that are whispering, but usually they're whispering because they're jealous and they're, they can't do what you're doing. Right. So there was a lot of that. And then fast forward a few years, you know, Nick and I are living together. We were figuring out what we were going to do with our lives, what we were going to start. And that's kind of how Midday Squares came along. Nick had gotten his hands on some really amazing, valuable data about the vegan market growing rapidly and the real chocolate market growing rapidly. And in the shower, he had this aha moment, basically that I was already making a baby of these two categories and why should we not try to commercialize it and take it to market? And so I'm like, let's fucking do it. Let's go. Let's, you know, let's go for it. And I remember I was making breakfast and he came out of the shower and he told me that. And I'm like, let's do it. And then we got married on November 17th. We went to Stowe, Vermont for our honeymoon. And I'm like, I'm over this honeymoon. Let's get back and let's begin, you know, what everyone knows now is a midday squares, you know? So that was the story of kind of my journey. So back to your question is, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I always had that in me. I was always really thinking big and dreaming big. And I still do every day. You know, one of our mottos here at Core Values is like, is think really big. Like I could read you some of this stuff, but think huge and believe. We're not scared of these words. We're going to be bigger than Nike. If you do not believe the possibilities of that statement and truthfully believe those statements to be true, Midday Squares is not for you. And these are some of the core values that we give each of our team members, because if you can't dream, you can't work with us. That is 100%. Okay. That's a little bit about me and the story. Yeah, that was a lot. <laughs> How many times have you told that? 
honestly, I haven't told it that often, but it's funny that we're talking about this today. Monday, our producer wanted to do an interview series on Jake, Nick, and I, and we've never done that yet, like a one-on-one deep dive. And some of the things that we're talking about today, she had asked, and I haven't spoken about it in a while, about my childhood and about, you know, not being accepted and really being told that I'm going to equate to nothing. And so it's funny you asked it because we just spoke about it on Monday, but I don't speak about it that often. I don't talk to people as much as I should be. I'm really stuck in my office, in my safe space, I guess you can call it, in the plant. So I don't get out there and talk about the story as much as I should. Do you find it difficult when you look back in retrospect or do you do you look back positively or do you see a lot of like the negative? Do you see the, I, this didn't work, this didn't work, or do you, do you see it as growth moments or both? Yeah, I would say both. Definitely growth moments. I think If my past didn't happen the way it happened, I don't think I would be the woman I am today, to be honest. I think all of the negativity and all the people that didn't believe in me, it that fuels me. Like that fires me up. You know, today a lot of those people call me for advice or right, like want to follow, want to be part of the the hype and all that stuff, which, you know, it is what it is, right? That's what they say happens. But, you know, even my high school had called me in, they wanted me to speak to the students. And I did it. I don't have pride or ego. I have it sometimes, but a lot of the time I'm in the belief that leave the pride, leave the ego at the door. You know, that's the past. Let's look to the present. Let's look to the future. You know, I know exactly what you're talking about. The people that come out of the woodwork and you're just looking at them thinking, yeah, wait a second. Are you that same person? Do you have a good story or memory of one of those moments that happened where you went, whoa, like this is what they told me would happen. Yeah, I think, you know, definitely with the high school calling me up, you know, I can't tell you how many times I got in trouble. I was also diagnosed with heavy learning disabilities growing up. So I was always put in like special needs and all these things. And it was like really intense when I didn't ever feel that I needed it. I just needed a space to be myself. And I didn't get that. So instead I was like, oh, you're different. So you need to be here. It was really exciting when the school called me up to say, you know, wow, we want you to come speak to our students, you know, the same student that they really didn't believe in or really made me feel like there was something wrong with me. So that was a great aha moment. And I do have other moments with, you know, people that there's a lot with, you know, men and and different people who maybe wouldn't have taken me seriously before, but now are asking me, okay, how do you run media? How do you run marketing? What are, you know, what's going on in manufacturing? How'd you build these machines? You know, people call Nick and they're like, how did you guys build the machines? Like, we're looking to do this, this, and this. And Nick's like, why are you calling me? Like, my wife built the manufacturing plant. Like, I don't know. I couldn't answer any of these questions. And when they have to call me, that's a whole other ballgame. Like, that hits hard. Yeah. You wouldn't believe how many founder couples we know where the woman is the CEO, the woman is the one that built the recipe, built the product, and really like the husband is kind of there as that backbone infrastructure support, yet every single investor, every single vendor, everybody always looks to him first and just assumes he's the one in charge. It happens, I can't tell you how often. I had early on, I mean, with some of my investors, I had that problem, you know, where they would call Nick or Jake. And I remember I heard one of the calls and it it actually, we had an explosive fight, me, Jake and Nick, because I was like, when that happens, you better say, why are you calling me? This is not my division. I don't know. I can't answer these questions. Les handles this. And we had that moment and they didn't understand how important that was. 
because men are not always aware of certain things, but I am fighting so hard to be this CEO, to be taken seriously, to be respected, um, and to be acknowledged for what I'm doing every day. So after that, that was really early on. Then they really understood after we spoke. And it's never happened again, you know, because for them, they're just like, oh, well, it wasn't a big deal. You know, it was just a phone call. I'm like, yes, but to me, it's a huge deal because this is what I'm doing every day. You know, I have to show up really hard to get the same acknowledgement that you guys get every day. And that is real. You know, it is real. And CPG is an old industry with old mentality. Oh, yeah. White dude, like central. Oh, my gosh. The One of the pieces of advice we had on our founder survey was, girl, you better learn golf and you better get into some old white dude hobbies because it's real. Oh yeah. hundred percent. I think even at one point we were meeting with some investors and my brother was going golfing <laughs> with them. And I said, I can go, I golf. And I was just like, I didn't want, I don't like golf. So, but it's true. Everything you're saying is true and has happened and is shitty. But I think, you know, words are one thing, but doing is a whole other. And the more I do and do, the more they see, and you don't really have to say anything. It's it's pretty, they acknowledge it. Yeah. So there's one topic that I'd love to explore a little bit further that you mentioned a little while back, and that was going through school. You mentioned some learning disabilities, and that was a really a struggle for you to operate in the confines of the traditional education system. We now know that just neurodiversity, right? That's what the new science shows is that the brain just works in different ways for different people and everybody can excel in different areas, but not every structure will work for every child. Not every structure will work for every adult. And I'm curious if you found that some of those disabilities, quote unquote, have really kind of become like a power of yours or talent that you have that others don't. Yeah, I think I'm with you. The school system for me is black or white. And there's a lot of people that live in the gray. And so there has to be change. You know, Nick and I have spoken about this often that when we have children, you know, the idea about homeschooling them, because the education system is backwards. Number one, how they created it for People that are in the gray zone, it just doesn't work. And then also the fundamental things that they're teaching you. Like when you leave school, you know nothing, right? Like you don't know how to control your finances. You don't know what a dollar means. You don't know the fundamentals of life. Even math, the way they teach math, the things that they they try to teach you, they're irrelevant. You need to know basic things and they need to be explained in a way that we can relate to. Because math is everything and a lot of stuff in a business is all about formulations, you know, key formulations. So they don't teach you the key stuff. They teach you stuff that you might know nor do you remember once you leave. And so, yeah, Nick and I are quite passionate about the school system, but learning disabilities, when I was in school, they were not equipped properly. You know, they were definitely not equipped properly. And I think my learning disorder is, well, I have two, I have ADHD and I have auditory processing disorder. So like I get super distracted. So if I'm in a conversation with you, but someone knocks on my window at my desk, well, I'll actually lose my train of thought and I will have to look and it will be really disruptive. So I think for me, that has been challenging the auditory processing, but I'm very, very vocal about it at the office. People know that they are not to interrupt, like do something to interrupt me while I'm in something. Yeah. Because yeah, exactly that will throw me off completely. So the auditory processing disorder has been challenging to navigate, but my ADHD is my superpower. You know, the ability to have a million thoughts is what makes me wacky. It's what makes me 
be able to lead the creative team at Midday Squares because I'm all over the place, but that's how I get magic. And so I think it should have been celebrated for sure growing up, but instead it was like, you need Ritalin, you need, you know, drugs. And my mom never put me on drugs, which I am so happy about. I ended up taking Adderall later on in my life for a period of time. I no longer take it. It had some pros. It had a lot of cons. I don't know how parents give Adderall to their children. My recommendation when people ask me is I say, take a pill yourself and see how you feel and then identify if you want to give this to your child because it's basically cocaine. It's basically that, that yeah, you can't sleep. You're completely stimulated. Your personality is completely toned down. I mean, for me, it works, right? It does. I take an Adderall, I can laser down on whatever it is I need to do. And I won't have, you know, multiple ideas or thoughts or have to go to the bathroom 10 times. I won't have to do that. But I'm not Leslie. And I think at one point when I was taking Adderall during my the days of my clothing company, when I got married to my husband, he said, if you continue on Adderall, I can't be with you. Because I wasn't myself. I was irritable. I was on edge all the time. I was you couldn't speak to me. If you had to speak to me, it's like, get to the point. I had no patience. And then at one point I was even forgetting things. Like I would take something out of the fridge and I had memory loss. So I was having extreme effects and I just stopped taking it. Every now and then, if I really need to laser in on something, I'll take a low dose of 10 milligrams and it's like a one day thing. But yeah, it really affects the body and the system and it's an intense drug. I don't know how parents give it to their kids. I really don't. Hey everyone, it's Jenny. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation. If you are, would you mind doing me a favor? Please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Today's podcast is brought to you by Veg Capital. Veg Capital provides early stage capital to companies striving to replace the use of animals from the food system. At Veg Capital, we believe that conventional animal agriculture is an inefficient, cruel, an unsustainable food production system, which is ready for innovation and large-scale disruption. To learn more about the work at Veg Capital, go to vegcapital.co.uk. It's kind of interesting that you say, you know, as you're describing what makes you function really well, and you also said earlier that you love sitting in your office, you have like your safe space. Do you think that that's one of the ways that you've learned to make yourself function optimally? Do you think that's part of making sure you stay focused as an actual space for yourself? Yeah, I think owning everything about yourself is really important. You know, I've set my space up, number one, for me. So I have things and places to go if I need to take breaks, if I need to go for a car ride, you know, if I need to have a creative space. So I am fortunate to be able to make my space mine. But even when I'm out of the office or at a long meeting, I'm very verbal. I suffer from ADHD. You know, this is something I have. So I might need to leave the room two, three times. When I need to go for a walk, I'll be back. You know, or even my husband, his family's Italian. So when we started dating, we'd have those like eight hour dinners. <laughs> After like an hour, I'm like, whoa, whoa, I'm wiped out, wiped. So now they know me, you know, I'll go take a nap for a few hours. I'll go watch TV. I'll come back. So it's about being verbal and owning it. And I think once you own it, people are very understanding and are flexible. Like even my team, they know I'm up and going. I might say, 
walk with me. Let's go. Like we're, it's like, Les, I have a question. Okay, let's go for a walk, you know? And it works. We work on it. And I'm very, like the culture we've said here at the office is all about be you, however that is, and whatever you need to do to be you, because that's how we're going to get the best you, you know, and the best stuff. Do you have any advice specific to this conversation? And then we can get more into what you're building. But I would love for any advice that you could share about how you have made some of these superpowers, so to speak, work for you. I think there's a lot, a lot of women out there, yep. especially women, they're more likely to, to go undiagnosed with things like ADHD than, than male counterparts. Any advice for them on how they can become entrepreneurs or just succeeding in their career in general? What's worked for you? Yeah, be okay with yourself. And exactly turn whatever, I don't like the word disability, you know, but like I said, growing up, that was what was used, you know, I'm just going to say, turn it into your superpower. Like you said, I think that's a great word. It is your superpower. Be okay with it. Accept it. Be vocal about it and move to the beat of your drum. That's really important because like I said, the minute you accept it and the minute you own it is the minute you are going to thrive. Do you think that you can direct your thoughts and your vision more when you try different things? It occurs to me that it's really interesting. You've tried so many different careers and you, that's part of your personality is that you are a dreamer and you like to have all these different ideas. Do you think kind of getting your hands dirty in, in each of these is allowing for you to focus in on midday squares now because you have been able to play out some of those visions? Yeah, I think as an entrepreneur, I also want to add one more piece of advice that just popped into my head about, you you know, somebody who might have, you know, a learning disability or something like that, learning, you know, superpower is when you really love something and when you're really passionate about something, you really begin to lose yourself in it. So the focusing component and all that, it really starts to change when you're really passionate about something, when you really go in. So yeah, be passionate about whatever you're doing. But back to your circle, back to your other question is, yes, I think my past has, you know, brought me to today. I think anything that I can create that I'm passionate about, I'm going to be passionate about. Right now, that's midday squares. Right now, that's making chocolate bars, you know, and I love it and I'm committed to it. You know, it's all I do. I eat, breathe and sleep midday squares. But as we grow bigger at midday squares and as we're able to use capital to either invest in other amazing entrepreneurs in different categories, even in food or not in food, that's where I'll continue on my journey of trying new things and investing in other entrepreneurs or you know, starting different stuff. I think as an entrepreneur, you're always wanting to do cool things. And when you see cool stuff or innovative products or innovative businesses, you want to be part of it because that's the entrepreneurial spirit, you know? But I think, yeah, dabble in many different things to find out what it is you want to be doing. You know, a lot of people are lost. Well, it's okay to be lost, but if you're not actively trying things out, and if you're not actively, you know, saying, do I like this or do I not, or questioning yourself or questioning what you're currently doing, you're never going to know, right? Like you can't just go through life saying, I'm lost, I'm lost. I don't know who I am. If you're not actively doing anything about it, you know, I think a lot of people called me a, like a giver upper as I was growing up because I would change or I would switch up. It's like, no, you're missing the point, right? I'm not giving up. I'm actively saying, this is not what I want to be doing. So I'm pivoting. And once you pivot and you do that enough, you build your gut feeling, like your gut knows when it's right. And you only know that by building that feeling. And so when it was time to close, you know, my fashion company, my gut was telling me, yes, it is time to close this, you know, and a good entrepreneur knows when to shut things down. And with Midday Squares, yes, my gut was telling me, let's do it. 
And Midday Squares has product market fit. So the company took off a lot quicker than expected, you know? So now we're on this journey of building this company and I'm wholeheartedly committed to that. And I, I do believe that in my lifetime, I will develop and build many other businesses and invest in amazing entrepreneurs because that is my big vision, you know? That's incredible. Okay, let's get to some of the Midday Squares, more minutia. One of my favorite questions to ask founders is, do you remember your first investor pitch and how did it go? So I have to say that Nick handles all the investing side of the business, bringing in the financials, but I'll say it from how I felt from my perspective of seeing him do it and remembering how it went. So when we started Midday Squares, Jake, Nick, and I invested the initial amount of money needed to get this thing off the ground. After that, we were introduced. Jake and Nick spent a lot of time networking, meeting people, and putting themselves out there. Nick was at a networking event before we started Midday Squares, met this guy who was a VC, who worked in a VC firm, connected with that guy. That guy, when we started Midday Squares, was like, you need to meet this firm. And so we met the first firm, which was BFG, Boulder Food group out of uh, Boulder. And I remember them saying, well, we're heavily interested in midday squares. Let's put something together. So Nick went down that whole path of, you know, building out the pitch, putting together our business plan, you know, who we are, what we do. And they were really interested. And then we went down that whole path of diligence. And I think when we first started, like starting the due diligence, we thought everything was a done deal. And so I remember us celebrating this like done deal that we got the money. And it was very far from that. So that was one piece, big learning curve is never celebrate or be excited until the money's deposited into your bank. Because the diligence took us over three months. They changed the initial investment. They reduced their initial investment. It costed us $150,000 in legal fees. We had to pay it. So you have to go through all of that due diligence. It costs so much money. So there was that. And I think only by the end, when Nick told me, all right, everything's done, the money's deposited, was I through the roof. So that was kind of my journey because while he was getting money, I was working on building up the manufacturing plant. So I wasn't heavily involved. I was just like, I trust, Jake and I both said to Nick, we trust you, you figure it out, you know, you're the money guy. And uh, he did, it was a really hard time for him. I remember seeing him through a lot of breakdowns, a lot of, you know, when is this going to be over? Like just a lot of stuff that he didn't expect. It's a very intense procedure and they go through everything and it's a lot of hours, it's a lot of work and it's very intense. You don't just get money like this. And I think us being newbies and new to the industry, you know, and we had a different idea of how it was going to pan out, but that was our first experience of getting the money in. And I was just super excited. I wasn't part of the pitch, um, but I, Nick killed it. I don't think a lot of people realize you have to pay that much for due diligence. That's the whole thing. You know, we didn't realize that either. <laughs> that was a huge learning curve. I bet. Yeah. A six-figure learning curve. Yeah. Yeah, because you know what? It's especially BFG is a U.S. company. Midday Squares is a Canadian company. You're dealing with the crossover of that. And, you know, their lawyers were you know, the due diligence was crazy on their side, but we have to pay for their due diligence. So we have to not only pay for our side and our lawyers, we have to pay for theirs. So it's very costly. I mean, we just finished our series B round and the total came out to about $50,000 in lawyer fees. So it was still substantial, but it was less and it was way easier experience than the first time around. But 
yeah, I think never think it's a done deal until the money is in your bank account. Yeah. Always prepare financially for the legal component of the whole thing. And yeah, start raising money at least six to eight months or maybe even eight to 10 months before you need it yeah. because the process could sometimes be very long. Did you struggle with the fact that you were a Canadian company? This is something that I've talked to a lot of founders about in particular. If you're not in the U.S., or maybe you're not in London or one of these like predominant spaces, particularly in the plant-based world, it can feel a little difficult to have access to that capital. Did you guys have any trouble with that? Have you had any weird issues because you are a Canadian company that's largely getting a lot of investment from outside of Canada? I think launching in Canada first is always more challenging because, you know, Canada's a whole other market. And then being a Canadian brand makes people think sometimes you're small, which is unfortunate for that that mindset because it doesn't mean you're small because you're a Canadian brand, but that is a real thought that people have. So at the beginning, we didn't face any issues with that per se. I think where we're going to have some issues now is launching in the USA. So basically we're doing our full out USA launch starting January and Right now, we market to our Canadian fans. We market, our following is predominantly Canadian. So navigating the U.S. launch and not turning them off, but still grabbing the new USA community, I think will be a challenge for us on the marketing brand standpoint. But from a financial standpoint, we've been okay. We've had people interested from Canada. We've had people interested from the U.S., I think where it was just challenging was the back end component, the legalities of the different countries. But yeah, besides that, everything's been okay. We will definitely see challenges for sure in how we pivot our marketing and not turn people off, but also turn new people on and packaging, right? The rules in Canada are different than the rules in the USA. The FDA has a lot of restrictions, a lot of regulations that we don't have. So Right now, you know, we're in the middle of designing our package for the USA, and there's a lot of stuff that we need to change, which is affecting the way the product looks, like, you know, things that we have to declare or not declare. So I think that's interesting. I know, you know, some other companies even have two completely different products, one for the USA, one for Canada. You know, there's other brands that have had no choice to do that because the rules vary. So, and I even know when you get into Europe, it's even crazier. So, we are feeling it on that component of launching in the USA, having to change things from the marketing to the brand. And I'm sure we'll see very soon the logistics and how things work on a retail standpoint. But we're getting ready to, you know, getting ready to launch and getting ready to see what that looks like for us. So that's going to be exciting for 2021. And for those that aren't familiar with Quebec, the, it is also the French speaking portion of Canada too. And so that in itself may also be something kind of interesting for y'all because you're not only dealing with being the smaller country kind of facing some of these bigger markets, but you're also in your own market in particular. Yeah, I love Montreal, Quebec. I do. I think Montreal's great, but the biggest downfall for us is the language barrier. You know, we personally have a lot of restrictions because of it. Being a Quebec company, you know, the label has to have English and French. French has always got to be bigger. So we do face that definitely has been a challenge. But the one thing they do say is that if you can make it in Quebec, you can make it in Canada because Quebec is like the hardest market to appease. And we blew the roof off here in Quebec. So that was exciting. 
Yeah. Well, it worked for Justin Trudeau. It did. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. Yeah. That's where his writing is. He comes from the French speaking version of Canada. Yeah. And the Quebec Club will not let you forget that. <laughs> <laughs> Never. The Quebecers fight till the very end to keep the traditions, to keep the language. And, you know, I love that. But I also think that it's okay to have English and French. Let's have love. Let's not have like, you know, it's you know how the world is. It is not worth the division. I agree. Okay. So what do you think? You've listed a lot of challenges and a lot of barriers. What do you think is the biggest mistake that you've made? so far? And what did you learn from it? Biggest mistake. So we've had a lot of little mistakes on the way. I think the overall mistake has been rushing on hires on team members. We have had really big financial errors happen because we've had the wrong people in place early on. So like I'm talking like two, $300,000 worth of mistakes over a period of maybe like two years. And that's heavy duty, right? So I would say between, you know, when you're starting up and you're scaling quickly and your business is walking you, you don't have that much control, right? And so you need humans to help you. And so you're working, you know, everything's a cash 22 and that's where it makes it complex. So you're bringing people on who might not have the expertise, but you're saying, hey, you need to be 10 roles in one. We don't have the ability to hire 10 people. So we only have the ability to hire one. And to find that person, you know, to find good people takes a really long time. It really does. So you find that person, you think they're good enough, you bring them on, you load them with responsibilities, and then they make a hundred mistakes. You know, but then you do have this, you know, we're a family business here. We run this place like a family business. We all hang out, we all shoot the shit together. Like we are all friends. That's our environment. Doesn't matter, you know, you work in the warehouse here or you work as the controller or you work in the plant or you clean the toilets. It doesn't matter. We're all friends. We sit down, we have lunch, we hang. And so you create this serious emotional connection with your teammate. And I think at the beginning you justify, okay, well, it's okay. You know, they made that mistake, but they're doing so much else and they're doing so much and we put so much on their plate. And so you justify having them around. But the longer you have them, the more mistakes happen. And then you come to a point where you have resentment. And then you realize, okay, we waited too long to do this. This relationship's no good. This is not the right person for the role. We need to invest money to find the right people to help us out. Jake, Nick, and I can't do everything. So we need a team behind us to help us. And we waited too long for that. So I think that was the biggest learning is when something's not working out with someone, one, two, three, I love you, but goodbye. And I've had a lot of coaching on this. I work with a business coach on it because the human component of this business is very hard for me to deal with. Dealing with 30 people every day, you know, having to tell someone, you know, you're not doing a good job or this and that is hard for me, but it is a transaction. So we do have that family culture, but at the end of the day, I'm paying you to do something. And if it's not being done right, we do need to talk about it. We do need to have a hard, uncomfortable conversation about it. And so those have been the challenges with humans and building a team. And the hardest part for me in this business is building the right team, finding the right people, and then getting them to believe in what you're doing because you are asking people to give it their all. You know, you are pushing them to their limit. And so that's been hard. And I think the biggest mistake was waiting, holding on to people too long instead of saying, we need to have a hard conversation. This is not working out, you know, and finding the right person. 
I've watched so many founders go through this coming from the tech world and, and my husband's a tech executive. And I have watched them. Every startup reaches this phase where you just grow and there's a new phase of the startup and not everyone that was in phase one can make it to phase two. Have you had two or three? Have you experienced one of those phase phases? Oh, what was that like? Oh yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. You nailed it. You know, the people you start with are usually not the people that, you know, cross the finish line with you. Sometimes, rarely, yes, it could happen. But in our case, so this is going to be really intense, but including and in full transparency, including our manufacturing team and including our operations team, I've let go of 50 people in the last two and a half years. And it's a lot. And it's because at the end of the day, Midday Squares is walking us. And if you can't hold on to it, if you can't move quickly, if you can't accept change, humans hate change. Yeah. You know, even in the plant when we started, right? Some of the girls that started with me in my condo, I had a bunch of Caribbean girls. They were wild. I love them. We would roll out the product and we'd be dancing and twerking and the whole works like to, and having the time of our lives. But the minute we went into our first little kitchen, you know, and it required, you know, different equipment or taking the garbage out and having to do deep cleans, you know, at my condo, I had someone come do it. But once we hit the plant, the, the first plant, you know, these became part of your task. They didn't like it. You know, they didn't like the chain. No, I don't want to do this. And so there was a lot of people not being able to keep up with how quickly Midday Squares is growing and how quickly we need to change, adapt, change, adapt. And so, you know, like you said, you got the people that started with you, then you got that second stage and you even got that third stage. And I think we call it MDS 2.0 right now. We're finally in a place where this is going to be the team. And maybe one or two people will leave on the way, but I really do feel that this is going to be the team that gets us, you know, to 20, 30 million plus in revenue. Yeah, it's a sad moment when you realize like you can't hang. That's just where we're going. But I think that that's a really, really important lesson that anyone with a startup needs to learn. It's when to identify, yep. you know, which team members are going to be able to excel and which team members just are not that right fit anymore. And you know, it sounds like you guys have identified that and you guys are kind of going through those growing pains and it happens with everybody. Yeah. What's next? What's the next year, maybe next year and like the next few years going to look like? So the next year, the next little bit for us. So we are trying to take this company public. So we call it the road to the IPO. So that is what we're gunning for right now. Midday Squares is trying to build a brand, a brand bigger than Nike. And in order to do that, we believe we need the public markets because the public markets buy into brands. They buy into that versus the private markets, the VCs. They're not so keen on brand building because it's failed so many times. We always say Midday Squares is either going to hit it really hard or it's going to fail. It's one of the two for us. There's no middle because we are playing offense at all times. So the next year for us is expansion into the USA, a new flavor drop, growing the team, building our margins, working on supply chain, and really getting these machines running. And the next year for us is how do we get to the public market? So really growing that revenue, really launching a whole new market and launching a new flavor and going from there. The big vision is the road to the IPO and to really build this brand and to really be known as an epic chocolate bar company that makes epic snacks, that has an epic community behind it. So that is our long-term goal. And that's what we're doing every day. We're pushing towards that. We're trekking along. And every day we keep in mind, you know, what we need to do and 
we always say, just do what you say and more and you will get there. So that's what's in store for us. Did you have this fixation on the IPO before the Beyond IPO? No. So the road to the IPO really started happening <laughs> the last, I would say, six to eight months. So basically how it happened was is one day Nick came into my office and he was like, we're going to IPO this company. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, we're just going to do it. We're going to IPO. Like, that's where we need to be. You know, this is what I had in mind. And so we had a deep dive. We went into a deep conversation about it because I didn't fully understand the public markets and how they work, you know, because there's a lot of risks. First of all, it costs you a million dollars a year just to be in the TSX, like the fees and all that stuff. So it's a huge investment. Yeah, it's very volatile. So, you know, that's how the market is, right? So at the end of the day, it is nerve wracking. It has a pros and cons, but we have seen people do it. Brands, even a local company, Guru, just did it. And it, it's been incredible for them. So I think it's a mix of all these brands that have done it recently that have been epic and had epic success. So I'm pumped about that. Just a, a quick note for listeners, the TSX is the Toronto Stock Exchange, in case you're not familiar with the acronym. Okay, so the last question that I am going to ask you, and then I will let you get back to building the chocolate bar empire, <laughs> which you like basically Willy Wonka, right? Yeah, basically. They call my brother Willy Wonka. Okay, it's like vegan Willy Wonka, basically. <laughs> you're in LA, right? Right now, I am not, but typically I'm in SF. Okay, you're in SF. Okay, because he's going down to LA. I would love for you to meet him. He's wild. And they people call him the Willy Wonka, our Willy Wonka. I know many people. We'll connect after this. Okay, love that. Okay, so what would you like to leave anybody that is joining today with that isn't into food, that isn't into plant-based, they don't really understand the hype, they don't know why everyone's talking about some sort of Beyond Burger or IPO, all this conversation. What is your pitch to them about why Midday Squares matters, about what you're building and why it is going to be so big and why they should invest? We have a lot of investors listening. I love that. Midday Squares is pushing the boundaries. So basically, you know, we're trying to push the limits in plant-based. We really believe in it, you know, to take products that are super clean, that are super easy to digest, that are super good for you, and really give people epic snacks with plant-based proteins and anything that comes from the earth. So we're really excited about that. You know, there's enough dairy products out there. There's enough bars on the market with whey. I don't like whey. It hurts my stomach. I can't eat it. So, you know, this product was and is designed for my husband and I, and we want to give it to the world because there's many, many ways to eat plant-based products without actually tasting the plant, you know? And those are the facts. People are scared from it. People are scared of the, because they think it's going to taste a certain way, but we're changing that for everybody, you know? And so if you haven't tried a Midday Square, you have to try Midday Square. And if you like chocolate, you're going to love Midday Squares. And we have three amazing flavors, Fajia, which was our OG, Almond Crunch, and Busta Peanut. Well, Peanut Butter. We actually had to change the name from Busta Peanut to Peanut Butter. There's some U.S. stores that won't stalk us with that name. So Yeah, that's okay. One of our, our VWS speakers runs a company called Slutty Vegan. So I love it. I would be curious to hear about their challenges. Yeah, we can't promote when we do like IG things featuring Pinky, we get flagged for profanity and it won't let us promote the post. That's crazy. Like women and men can be half naked on Instagram, but you can't use that word. I don't get it. I'll never understand it. Whatever. Times are changing. You're kicking ass. 
and I will let you get back to the chocolate factory. It has been a joy spending the last hour with you, and I can't wait to catch up again soon and potentially an LA hangman. I would love that. Thanks so much for having me, Jennifer. You're awesome, and uh, we'll speak soon. Awesome. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for joining us for today's Pathfinders podcast. I hope you'll rate and subscribe to follow more conversations like today. If you want to learn more about how to get involved with VWS, please check out veganwomensummit.com or follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram with at veganwomensummit and on Twitter with at vegwomensummit. Don't worry, you can find the links in the show notes. We're building a global community of women dedicated to creating a kinder, more sustainable world. Powered by CEOs, investors, celebrities, Olympians, and more, our events and media platform reaches thousands of women every day across six continents. We'd love your support. You can reach out to sponsor this podcast and more at veganwomensummit.com slash sponsors. See you next time.